Well, hello, and uh, welcome to another packed episode of uh, Pod of the Gaps. Uh, I'm Andy Bannister, and I'm joined as ever by my partners in crime or co-hosts, however they prefer to describe themselves, uh, Michael Otts and uh, Aaron Edwards. Hey, guys, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. Uh, nice to nice to be here. Nice to be with you, and nice to have my name correctly pronounced. <laughs> yes, and uh, yes, exactly. It's a bit of a running joke that it, we've only been doing this for like uh, you know seven episodes now, and I still can't get uh, Aaron's name right. And, but they're talking of names, though. It's exciting. We've um, this is our second the second episode, which we've actually got a proper name mm. for the podcast. I still have to practice. Pod of the gaps. None of this nonsense about you know other silly names and asking people to vote. We have a we're, we're like a grown up podcast now with a with a real name and everything on Apple Apple Podcasts and with Spotify yet. I did get a message just today saying that they're very glad that we now have a name because uh, we can actually get on with our podcasts rather than talking about it, which yes, actually, we're failing talking about getting, right now. And, and talking about getting on with our podcast, I mean, obviously to get on with a podcast, it's good to have everybody, you know, tuned in, uh, you know, dialed in and ready to record. But somebody whose name will go uh, nameless, Michael Otts, um, you know, kept Aaron and I waiting because you were out bike riding, dude. To go, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an audience waiting for our engagement with culture and you're peddling around Buckinghamshire or something yeah well I was um I have a little hut up on a farm that I sometimes go and work in to get myself out the house and uh I was honestly so engrossed in editing my new book that I uh, completely forgot to track of time so uh yes I had to pedal rather fast uh down the hill to get home and for uh for listeners who don't I can't appreciate watching this because we are we could see each other while we record this but we don't inflict that on listeners um michael is definitely trying to be quite 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 a rustic because not merely has he come from his from his hut on the farm he i can't really describe this he's got like a bowl with dough and he's kneading it he's literally making bread while recording a podcast that that that's, i've never seen that before so that's the modern that's man that's the that's the multicast the multitasking you know in extremis isn't it he's yeah, podcasting it could, it could go disastrously wrong we're going to have the worst podcast and the worst yeah. loaf of bread that i've ever made i did didn't we notice that when you were trying to post about the podcast you were getting like two likes compared to like 85 likes for your bread so your bread is clearly a better thing to do than the podcast yeah. so i can see well, why you're trying to see you did suggest that yeah. maybe what I should do is just post about my bread and then underneath <laughs> in the comments I can tell people about the podcast because that seems to be more popular. Exactly. They'll so think that they're going for bread and they'll find the podcast accidentally, which the will be a great way. Now, there, is a, yeah. there is a link here, though. There is a link before we get into the the, 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 the the kind of substance of the show that, you know, dough. And of course, dough is a euphemism for, for money in the in the UK. And to go, of course, you know, now this podcast is up and running, it actually costs a little bit to run. So just to kind of cheap sort of plug for... Folks who are watching this and tracking along and finding this helpful, uh, in the show notes, uh, wherever you're listening to this, you'll find a link to Patreon, which is a, a way where sort of you know creators of things like podcasts and bread, presumably, um, <laughs> and solicit donations. So if you were able to listen to this, you're loving the show, you're enjoying it. Uh, if we could get a few folk willing to even put a pound or two, a few dollars uh, a month behind it, it would make a huge difference because we now are picking up very you know some costs for running this with all the kind of production stuff mm. that goes on behind the scenes so if you're enjoying part of the gaps just really uh encourage you click through to the patreon link and uh, would love you to get behind us because we you know hope to make the show continue and covering you know all kinds of new topics i'm glad you and mentioned cool. that andy just so oh, oh sorry yeah, I, just, yeah. I just cut you off when you're making a perfect segue um you i did. was just saying it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because i used to read blogs and see the little patreon thing or the please contribute to my writing if, if you like my writing please pay me I was thinking, why do you need to be paid to write a blog? You're, you know, it doesn't make sense. This person's presumably got a job, and you know, they don't need the money to write. Why would someone need to? All of the blogs seem to have them, but then I didn't realise if you do proper blogging or podcasting, it actually does cost quite a lot of money to, for the platforms and the things to keep it secure and all the rest of it. So, good plug. That's right. There are there there are costs. There are costs to these things, you know. And we Michael has to, you know, we have to keep Michael in bread as well. But um, well, clearly, no, it doesn't cost much to run, but it does cost a bit. So that's yeah. So anyway, do do a few uh, pre-shows, click through. But today we have an excitingly uh, you know packed show for you, and we thought we would explore the whole topic over the next 35, 40 minutes uh, today of, uh, of, of the media, uh, by which I mean particularly the news media. We looked at social media and kind of digital media on the previous show, but really now the kind of news media. And, of course, we live in this kind of 20, 24-7 
news world, don't we? I mean, when I grew up, showing my age, it was really you had like the six o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news, but nothing much in between. But now, of course, news has expanded to fill everything. And I remember first really be, be, becoming aware of this back when 9-11 happened, you know, a couple of decades uh, whatever it is ago. And I remember sort of, you know, literally sitting, watching news for almost 24 hours constant, mm. hopping channels, trying to find different updates. And of course, everyone had the same stuff, so it wasn't anything. And when big crises come, I still catch myself doing this. Like I've, I've really OD'd on news during COVID. And then there's been a lot of craziness going on in, in the, the politics in Scotland where I live. And I caught myself the other night at 11.30pm, iPhone out, hopping between you know, three or four different news sites, hitting refresh, pulling Twitter up. Was there anything new? And I caught myself going, what the heck are you doing, Bannister? Um, and this 24-7 constant news thing has changed a lot. I think one of the things it's brought is brought distraction. And one of the things it's done is take away reflection time. Mm. Or at least I find that. Am I, am I alone? Do, do you guys find the same thing? Is that a problem? And and, and how do we respond, particularly as, as Christians, to a world that is seems to be moving ever faster uh, with ever less time to reflect on what we're being told, I will say you're not you're not alone in thinking regularly. What the heck are you thinking, Bannister? I mean, Michael and I regularly uh, have that thought and try to. Thanks for that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think one of the things I would say is um, not just you know an inability to reflect and and a continual kind of distraction, but I also say in terms of people's mental health, like increasing levels of anxiety. Um, it's just not healthy when you're kind of reading a 24-7 kind of COVID news feed. I mean, it, we used to get it like, you know, kind of happen for a day or two when a big news event happened and then they would stop it. Like, we feel like we've had one that's mm. basically been going on for over a year now and it's just continually mm. going on. And I mean, some helpful advice just on a very practical level that I had early on in the pandemic was just saying, you know, just once a day get your news and then switch it off like mm. anything major you'll hear about it but like we don't actually need to know that all the time it's kind of it's a bit like we're saying last week with social media is there to just try and keep your attention but you know, it's not like i'm going to miss anything if i kind of turn off for a few hours yeah there's yeah. definitely a sense you're right and as, as you said too andy the um the distractedness can become a significant issue spiritually as well can't it because it just it detracts your attention to lesser uh, lesser objects of, uh, I guess, contemplation, and I think there's something about. I think we mentioned a bit last week as well. The aset, the need to recover something of the ascetic mindset, which we just do not get in the West today. We constantly mock the idea of a monk in a monastery or something, you know, which was quite significant. Well, still is a significant um, tradition in in the church, but was far more significant in previous eras where it was it was recognised that there's an importance of withdrawing for a particular purpose, not just because you don't like the world or you don't like the systems, or you don't like people, but and you just want to pray on your own in a cloister. It's actually that there's a need to withdraw. It's like fasting. There needs to be a kind of discipline and saying, I'm just choosing not uh, to give myself to this. I'm choosing to contemplate what ought to be contemplated, which is primarily God and who he is and then his acts in the world. And then from that basis, from that worshipful place, I can make better decisions and I can have a better, a clearer perspective. Hmm. I wonder as well, as you say that, whether, whether there's also, I mean, the, the, the things you say there, Michael, I completely agree with. I also, and Aaron, sorry as well, uh, the other, the, um, I also wanted to something, <laughs> I was listening, I was listening. Really so, I was looking at Michael and the bread. That's why I said Michael when it was Aaron who said The bread is very food. distracting. It is distracting. Needing, needing away, making loaves. Um, the, the thing that I think is interesting, on the one hand, you know, we could just talk about the distraction kind of stuff. But there's also, I think there is also something sort of more insidious going on. And as Christians, it's not just, it's not enough, I think, just to be negative. But we need to begin by diagnosing it. Hmm. And one of the, the, one of the books I want to come back to throughout the show a little bit as a touch point there's a phenomenal book for folks who haven't read it called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. Um, came out in the mid-1980s, talking about television and, and the impact it's having on attention. And everything he wrote then is even more true yeah. in the digital age. And he's got some very helpful stuff on, on news media. And one of the things that, that Postman says in that book, and I think it was interesting, Aaron, that you said you hadn't read it, but you've read so many quotes of it, you've mm. almost read it, because yeah. it's been so talked about. It just so turned the world upside down. But for listeners, if you haven't read it, do, do check it out. Right in the introduction, he makes a very interesting contrast between George Orwell, who wrote the book 1984, mm. and uh, Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, wrote both dystopian novels. Yeah. And lots of people talk about 1984 and the kind of Big Brother type stuff. 
But Postman's point is that actually Huxley was onto something more relevant. And just read you this little paragraph, and I just love, you know, perhaps both of you to sort of reflect a bit. He says, What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was there was no, be no reason to ban a book because yeah. there'd be nobody who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information we would be reduced to passivity and mm. egoism. Orwell feared the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. And I, you know, I reread that this afternoon and I thought, man, I mean, it's very, very hard mm. to dis agree with that that actually the sheer sea of stuff has a has an effect almost i know i wonder if it's an intentional effect actually a mm. sort of dumbing folks down making it impossible to really engage with some of the big issues because there's just no framework to do it in and we have literally mm. you know amused ourselves to death because the news in many ways functions as entertainment mm. um yeah. these days um, maybe I'm being deeply pessimistic. I do live in Scotland. Um, am I, or uh, what, what's your thoughts? Uh, d- just a few that? things that immediately come to mind on that. The <clears throat> interesting, as I said, yeah, that I've, I've not read the book Postman's book, but I feel like I have. Um, one of the books that I read some reflection on what he was saying was by a book by Stanley Howavas, where he was talking about this problem of uh, the world we live in as having been created by television. And of course, mm. Postman is reflecting on that in the eighties. But I think you said Andy, his son was it who wrote the foreword to, forward a new to this book, one, yeah, yeah. Um, in, in two thousand six was it? And uh, it shows how more how relevant his thought still is in the digital age. Um, and that's the thing that Howard West was reflecting on. We literally live in a world that television has created. So it's not that we live in a world and that we've sat down and watched television in our leisure time. It's that our engagement with that media literally has a direct effect on the actual ideas and things that happen in the world. And we don't really think that's true. We don't you know, really believe that's true. We, but that's part of the whole conceit. Mm. That's the, where the dystopian mm. uh, reflection that you allude to is really true. I think Rod Dreher does similar. I think he possibly even quotes that very quotation in, in Live Not By Lies as well, which I guess we'll discuss when we eventually talk about Dreher. Um, which is interesting, but it makes me think of another novel uh, from probably nearly 20 years-ish. Was it 20 years ago? A bit less than that. 20, 2006, I think. It was by David Mitchell, not the comedian, but the author. It was a brilliant uh, author, a contemporary author. He wrote a book called Cloud Atlas, which was later made into a film that wasn't so good. but Not not bad, but the book was amazing. And in it, he, is, he has a kind of dystopian section within this epic novel where all of the people in it are given credits that they have to keep spending it's a kind of consumerist dystopia where they have to, if you don't spend your credits you actually get in trouble so it keeps you constantly spending and constantly distracted so that you can't deal with the fact that you're being entirely controlled by this kind of massive corporation and i think there's a lot of or clearly mitchell was making that kind of critique of our mm. consumerist age and i think a lot of it does track in from the postman analysis as well of the kind of world we live in yeah. um, and the dangers that are there so i don't think you're wrong andy at all at seeing the dangers of the mm. distraction and, and the dystopic ways that uh, people have interpreted. I think the, the Huxley thing is bang on. The, the soma that the, the, the people in that world have to take is entirely there to distract them from seeing the true thing, the, tr- the true reality, and thinking actually mm. that what they have is good. Uh, this is something that Drea talks about as well in China, for example, the kind of younger generations who are um, not really aware of how much of their privacy is given away by their investment in all of these media platforms because they don't care because it's so convenient for them to keep doing what they're doing and the access they have to everything at their fingertips they don't care that the police could literally be watching them at any moment that kind of mm-hmm. stuff yeah now yeah. in some ways that I was, I was going to say i was going to segue to you to michael uh, if there's a, you wanted to add something to that just to say that i mean all of that could be quite depressing but then how do we live in the light of that michael how do we avoid how do we avoid just getting depressed and sitting in a corner and, and crying? As Christians, I love the way you put that there, Aaron. We live in a world that TV and digital culture has made. How on earth as Christians do we live authentically in the in the light of that? Neither just give going with the flow, nor just standing in a corner, you know, either crying or just yelling in anger. Uh, how do we engage and engage well? I guess 
part of it starts with just thinking about it, doesn't it? You know, if we're aware of what the media is doing, if we're aware of some of the challenges and the dangers, just like we said last week with social media, in a sense, you, know, you can then start to think about, like, I think we use the terminology using it rather than being used by it. And and that might be helpful, you know. Um, so for me, one of the things is just to think, okay, well, actually, what I see represented on the BBC News feed isn't necessarily the sum total of what's really important happening in the world right now. Mm. Like, and actually, and this is a question I wanted to kind of bring up, um, to what extent is the media reporting the news, but also is to what extent is the media creating news that it wants to create? How much is it setting mm. the agenda? Because, yeah, you know, there's, there's so much stuff that is happening that gets very little airtime. Um, and yet it's really, really important. Now, uh, for me, one example of that will be the kind of ongoing situation in Belarus. You know, it's a country, it's within our own continent. Um, there's massive kind of political unrest, um, instability in the country. There's been protests that have been going on for months. Um, and yet, you know, despite that, very little kind of attention in the British media um, compared to other things. And yet I'd say that's pretty important. Now I'm, I'm slightly biased because I've got friends in the country and I care about mm. it. But but it's just one example of how actually, you know, in terms of like levels of importance, mm. obviously part of that is dependent by geography, you know, stuff that's close to us, the stuff that happens in America yeah. and Western countries will get kind of higher levels. But I think as a Christian, I want to say if I'm going to be a global Christian, like I'm not to kind of make my hierarchy of importance the same as the BBC's, you know, just because it's not happening in a Western country or in Britain doesn't mean I shouldn't care about it. So maybe I need to seek out news that isn't going to be at the top of the agenda in certain feeds, uh, but actually make myself aware of stuff because that's also important. Mm. It's amazing. I think that's really interesting. Go on, Aaron. I was just going to say, it's amazing how much news has become politicised in that way, isn't it? um, And yet many people don't realise how controlled it is by the platforms, by, by the media by which we hear the news. We often think of the media as the ones who almost, that they're really just the medium. They are the ones who bring us the news. And we mm. often trust that the platforms are doing so objectively, but they're obviously not. It's very political. There's so many ways in which there's bias involved in, in, all, in various sort of platforms. And it's mm. a really tricky one to sort of, yeah, to work out. I think just on that, one, one little thing. Um, in terms of like the media creating news, it struck me a while back when the current Archbishop of Canterbury was, um, what do you call it, enthroned in whatever. Um, <laughs> installed. Yeah, that's installed. Boiler, that's boilers, isn't it? <laughs> boilers. <laughs> install boilers, you enthrone a bishop. <laughs> Does he want to be a boiler or a king? I don't know. But, uh, um, but anyway, when he became the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, it was interesting because the BBC did an interview with him and kind of repeatedly asked him questions about controversial issues around sexual sexual ethics. And then they made that the headline news, mm. you know, Archbishop speaks out on blah, oh, yeah. blah, blah. And it was like, no, actually, you asked him the question <laughs> and now you've created the headline. Like, yeah. it's nothing to do with what's actually happened news-wise mm. today, but you yeah. asked a question so you could create a headline that fitted your agenda. Mm. And, you know, how often yeah. does that happen? Mm. And that's the thing well, is... That that raises right... a... Sorry, keep... we... <laughs> Andy, this is not the episode where we just, where we just keep like cutting you off. There's something about the media. No, I'm going to press ahead now. This so I'm just going to go over now because the great thing is we take it in turns of the host. So I'm just going to press the mute button. No, I just pick up something Michael said there because um, you know one of the things that intrigued me with that is actually when Christians do get sort of uh, you know hijacked by the media, whether we've bought into the whole oh it's the media, it's the BBC, we need to engage. And I remember I think it was last week when we were sort of prepping this episode out. I told you guys the story when I lived in Canada for, for six years. And early on in my time in Canada in 2010, I met a very well-known um, kind of pastor in the, in the, in the town. I won't, I won't mention his, I've got permission to share the story, but I'm not sure if he wants his name shared. Pastor of a huge, huge actually church in, in Toronto, about 5,000 uh, people. I thought we should narrow it down to a, to a few, to a dozen or so leaders. <laughs> and uh, this was around the time, it just, Canada had just gone through the whole gay marriage thing. And been a big civic debate, and they, you know, national debate, and they they'd legalized it. But during that debate, um, he'd got rung up by the uh, CBC, which is the Chris, the Canadian equivalent of the BBC, and said, "Oh, would you come on this big, quite well known in Canada news program? Uh, because we want to debate on on gay marriage. Should it be legalized?" Uh, and uh, my my friend had the you know been announced and been around the block a few times, so he had the ability to say he he, he said oh to so the researcher oh yeah I, potentially yes he said um, of course if I come on the show what I'd want to do is I want to sort of pull the camera back talk a bit of the other sort of you know philosophy and the and the history behind this debate certainly want to talk about you know the ontology of marriage what Christians believe marriage is and really just set a much bigger context in which we could think about this 
question in its ethics. Um, he said, so is that the kind of thing you're looking for? Um, he said, there was a bit of silence on the other end of the phone. He said, or are you looking for a Christian who can come on who you guys can paint to be the right wing reactionary and basically make fun of for 20 minutes? <laughs> and uh, the researcher, he said, laughed. And he said, the yeah. researcher said to him, you've almost quoted exactly the briefing notes I've got from my producer. That's what we need. He went, well, I'm afraid I'm not going to be that person. Thank you for calling. Mm. He said, sadly, was he tuned in two days later, they'd found another pastor who'd been willing to go on. And that's exactly what they did. They, they manipulated it, they framed it, and they set him up to look like the idiot and the, and the homophobe and mm. everything else. And this poor pastor got his reputation totally trashed but because he got drawn to the glitz. And mm. I wonder whether as Christians, we still have a tendency to get drawn to the glitz of mm. the media a bit. And hence, you know, it'd be interesting if the archbishop had turned around and gone, actually, no, I'm not interested. Thanks very much. I've got a church to run. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good <laughs> no, that's a very good point. I think it's, it's consecrated the term. I can't remember. Maybe it is for Archbishop. <laughs> anyway, uh, but but uh, yeah, I think that's a really good story. Well, good story. Uh, a sort of you know tale of uh, caution, really. Uh, tale of woe. Tale of woe and caution for the media because I do think it's tempting, isn't it? Whenever you get an opportunity like that uh to want to take it because you're always going to see the good and go how can it be a, i think we talked about this with our the platform building thing how could it be a bad thing for me to do this i can remember talking similarly to a, a pastor in aberdeen when i was up up in your neck of the woods andy uh for a few years and he was asked again uh they were one of the churches that were refusing this wasn't for gay marriage of course it, but it was for whether you could have gay ministers uh, in the church of scotland and again, they wanted that church to, someone from that church to go and speak on the media. And he said, no, absolutely not. I know exactly how it will be. I've seen this before. It will be, I'll give a nuanced response and they will quote me in a very short uh, segment and then pit me against someone else and say what I've said as though it's a response to someone else talking about their emotional hurt, how the church has hurt them, how they want to express themselves. And then they'll have me talking about Leviticus or something as part of a wider discussion. Um, and that's clearly how these things work. And they need to make great, exciting tv and uh, really they're not interested in the truth similar like on um question time is it question is it still called question time or is it called something else the sunday morning one oh, so yeah. often you see that and i've had friends who've been invited i think i got an invite to go to that fairly recently again it's it, it's something that you think you're not really going to get a chance to speak you can see that they're not they're only after a little bit of fodder for about 15 seconds or something um and then you're done you can't you know i can't interrupt the host like I can here clearly uh, with the same uh, <laughs> frequency and so you just don't get to say what you need to say and I, I think that's I think I've heard Don Carson another Canadian in fact uh, say the same thing he's often refused I think he's regularly refused opportunities to speak on mm. big networks because he hasn't got the opportunity to speak with authority with a kind of I'm speaking on behalf of the word of God here this is what the case is and you're going to let me speak like you can in a pulpit you just clearly aren't going to get that time other pastors clearly i think john MacArthur regularly would speak on larry king's show in the states and often had a quite good airtime so there's different situations where maybe you can get a better a better hearing and larry king was someone who was a bit better at allowing the people to speak uh, from their perspective but still i think it's a, a real minefield yeah. isn't it yeah. Well, here's another minefield. If we've, we've stepped on, you know, we've, we've, t we've tiptoed around some landmines or cycled around them in, in Michael's case, uh, while needing dough. <laughs> and um, here's another, here's another totally, totally non-controversial question that's not going to get us into trouble with any parts of the Christian community at all. And uh, that's the question of do given this what we've said about the, the news media, and I think it's just beset with problems. And yes, you can navigate it wisely once you're aware of those if you're very, very careful. Is there a tendency or a pattern in some parts of the church that we end up aping and copying the the, the, the news media? Uh, but I mean, for example, you know, I, I came across the uh, the story of a, you know a Christian magazine. I won't mention which one, although of course the frightening thing is you could probably Google it and find out to which I'm referring. <laughs> um, which had on its at its cover, you know, uh, a while ago. It's a while ago. On the cover had this story: uh, top ten tips for getting closer to God with a kind of big jazzy headline which is totally mimicking you know the way that so many sort of trashy magazines you know five tips for for making sourdough while live on air um you know, three three cures for for nostril hair or something and to just and as somebody said commenting on that just looks like that just looks like religion mimicking mtv and so does this christian media at times because this often happens in the church i worry that at times we look at what the culture's doing and actually we don't stop and reflect rather we go oh that's the way to do it and we just 
copy it. So we talked about this last week on on the social media episode. But I wonder, is this a, a danger in Christian media? Uh, do you think we don't need to name any names? <laughs> we can I find sign it slightly. I find it slightly ironic that we're talking about it, given that before we came into this, we were discussing about whether we need to make our podcast titles slightly more catchy and sexy because people <laughs> weren't do. clicking on them. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? I, it is, isn't it? We, I, yeah. we talk about clickbait. I mean, like you know, the idea of like you know, you just get people to kind of click on. I guess there's, I guess there's, uh, like a balance, isn't there, between on the one hand, like not kind of writing headlines in Christian magazines that sound like a Puritan book cover. Like, <laughs> yeah. like you know, we probably want to be <laughs> a bit more... What's wrong with Puritan s- book covers? <laughs> I mean, they're very, like... You know, they, they are the title. The cover is the title. That's how long the title is. It could be Exactly. I mean, you, you don't actually need the book because you've got it all <laughs> in the title. Um, as a yeah, So that's on one extreme. But then on the other, you know, there's the kind of clickbait. And I don't know about you, but, like, you know, when you're scrolling through social media and you, like, you succumb to clickbaits and you're just, mm. like... And you, the thing is, like, it's so disappointing, isn't yeah. it? Because you just feel like, like oh... And it's, like, you drag through, like, all this stuff. And it's, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> like, you need to read my blog post, Six Reasons Why You Shouldn't Click on Articles on Social Media. so so yeah i mean i think like we do want to be engaging like there's nothing wrong with that like there's nothing wrong with being you know provocative in a good sense um but i guess it's a question of motive behind that um if it's just trying to you know unnecessarily grab people's attention for the sake of grabbing people's attention then then that's what and i guess that's maybe one thing to think as a christian i've often thought you know there's a danger in as Christians, you know, particularly with like social media and lockdown and like content building, mm. you know, someone said, you know, as Christian ministers, we've gone from feeding the flock to creating content. Yeah. Um, and and there's that danger that we feel this kind of urge, we've just got to keep saying stuff because mm. we've got to kind of put more and more stuff out there. Mm. And, you know, I'd like to think, you know, like on the podcast, if we didn't feel like we had anything to talk about, we don't need to do one. Like we've always said, like, we'll do one each week while we've got stuff to talk about. But at the same time, you know, we don't have to... Mm feel the need to just kind of keep you know beating yeah. a horse yeah or we just feel yeah. the or we just feel that we could just fill the airtime with talking about inane things like sourdough and, and podcast so yeah yeah the piece you mentioned the, the piece the thing you mentioned there though michael does connect something yeah. interesting there doesn't it mm. it also because all these things connect and it was interesting you know as i was doing a bit of prep because when i host the conversation i, I spend a couple of hours prepping i know you guys just wing it because that's <laughs> not the next one. um and I like you about sort of 15, 15 different questions and they all kind of interconnect. Should we ask the, the um, read should we ask the listeners if they can tell? No, no. That's why it's annoying that he oh. keeps being interrupted, because he's done so much work and we keep interrupting. That's exactly it. I got these I got these questions I've done while getting through them. So if it takes three hours on the show, so be- <laughs> now, the piece that you mentioned there though, Michael, does connect to another theme, doesn't it? It connects the whole monetization thing. Mm. Because I think one of the things that Postman, you know, in um, using himself amusing uh, himself, amusing ourselves to death talks about is of course that news has segued and become entertainment mm. uh, and you know the very fact that you know things we just take for granted the fact that a news bulletin if you watch a tv news bulletin starts with music why the heck does it start with music that's what you do at the start of a film or a tv serial why did why do we need to do that for a news bulletin it's framing it as entertainment then the fact that the news is broken up with advertising and online stuff is a nightmare for this right mm. i don't know uh, if you guys find this i you know, it drives me potty that, you know, which, which you ever saw, Simon, whether I go to, you know, The Guardian, The Telegraph, uh, BBC News obviously doesn't happen because it's funded through through taxation. But almost everywhere else is like advert, advert, advert mm. everywhere, which is why they want to get your eyeballs on things. And mm. obviously, I'm presuming that monetization does risk skewing things to some degree, mm. right? Because mm. to go the old adage of follow the, the money and if a uh, you know, stories that attract more eyeballs mm. are going to bring more advertising revenue, mm. and then the the media source is going to do more of those. And the same applies in the Christian world, I suspect. Yeah. Well, obviously, Andy, we've got to remember that at this point in the podcast, we are contractually obliged to mention uh, Michael Ott's uh, sourdough uh, business. Uh, so <laughs> please uh, tune in for the thirty second uh, infomercial about uh, how you too can become a great sourdough maker. Whilst all podcasting. I can say to that. All I could say to that is begets behind me, Satan. That's what I'll say. <laughs> exactly. <that. laughs> um, no, but it, I, I, you know, I think you're right. It's it's a huge, uh, it's a huge kind of issue to be aware of. I'm also aware, conscious, actually thinking about what you were saying uh, about the way in which Christians can't, you know, need to have our kind of wits about us about how we're involved and how 
we, we mustn't allow those things to shape us too much. I, I think like, similar to when we talked about the church and culture in general, we've gotten so used to just following the pattern, allowing those ads or the world we're immersed in to shape us and we're drinking it, we're, we're, we're breathing in the air. It's, and we're, we're so quick to think we're always doing this savvy cultural engagement. And we really don't realise how much we're being malformed by the culture um, and being conformed to this world rather than transformed by the renewal of our mind. I was thinking for an example recently, an example of someone wanting to promote this uh, quite prominent um, event. I'm now going to, maybe you guys have promoted it and maybe you'll be annoyed at me now, but it's called Sermon of the Year. And quite a few, you know, Christian media outlets like to sort of promote this. And it's in, in Britain, it's clearly based on um, a secular mode of giving someone credit for something. And so why, what's so bad about this? We're getting people to preach their best sermon, uh, to come along. And then there's judges who look at it. It's kind of almost like a pop idol style thing, but for sermons. And then the, and there's lots of people, there's Bible colleges that promote it. I had it sent around to us at Cliff College. And I said, we cannot promote that, partly because I literally spend a couple of a couple of my preaching lectures that I do on the preaching course denouncing that exact thing. And I, I think I actually have a slide where I have a, a kind of screenshot of that as being an example of how... Hey, if, te- there's, a, if, there's, a, if there's a Catholic version of that, they could call it Pope Idol. <laughs> I had to get that joke in there to go, just, it was just so obviously... So, exactly. Which again, I guess, is the, the, the aping the culture thing. So, um, mm. you know, I think we've done some... We've been going for about half an hour and we've done some some diagnosis on things. I'd love to sort of think about a bit how we engage a little bit, because obviously the whole, I think the whole way with the podcast is to help help Christians think about some of these things and begin thinking more about these things. Because half the challenge is until you're aware of them, you can just sort of swim along with the current before realising, man, there's an issue here. And uh, we, were, we were discussing before we, we hit record, there's a, um, there's a quote attributed, well, it's, uh, we were debating whether this is Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon or Karl Barth, so this we discovered with a bit of googling because of course that's how we do research these days. But actually, it was an idea that Spurgeon articulated and then Karl Barth put into a more pithy soundbite, which is this idea of uh, when you, as a Christian, when you when you pray or if you're a pastor when you preach, that you should kind of do that with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, so that you you know you have a, your eye on the Word of God, but you're also thinking about how this applies into the culture. And I'm just intrigued. I, I think that's a lovely idea. Does it still work? Do we need to adjust it slightly for the modern kind of media kind of kind of world? Can we just pray with the Bible in one hand and BBC News open in the other? Um, is it a good way of staying engaged as we as we pray and we preach? What do what do folks think? Does it still stand up? Oh, sure. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't want to talk too much. I, I, I will. Has it stopped you so far, Aaron? Has it stopped you so far? <laughs> the host can't even stop me. Well, you can mute me, actually. Yeah, the media mobile can mute me. Um, yeah, I said. I, I think that that's a great. It is a really important quote. I, I, it's, it's probably not. It would be surprising if Bart had come up with it separately to Spurgeon. I'm not sure Bart read Spurgeon, um, uh, but he wouldn't have had contact with him. Other German theologians of the time did, like Tillicke, wrote a whole book on Spurgeon. I don't think Bart did. Either way, they both had similar concerns of bringing the word. I love the fact that you know the name of every major German theologian. I mean, it's just so impressive. <laughs> and, and whether or not they'd read Spurgeon. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, I was just admiring your one, useless <laughs> knowledge there. But yeah, yeah, we've got to spend our time so doing something. He's making sourdough on a podcast. So. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we're both tired with the same pointless brush in a way. At least you can eat the product of yours. I can't do anything with my tea licking knowledge. Um, yeah. So well, of course, uh, just as a, you know, you, just an aside, there is the old joke, yeah. isn't there? About what's the difference between a theologian and a large loaf of sourdough? A large loaf of sourdough can feed a family of four. <laughs> Sorry, that's a really good point. you were saying I interrupted you true. twice. That was, that was true. You're no, that's fine. Points, you're getting so. your own back. Um, yeah, how do you know I'm making serious points? No. Uh, so basically, interestingly, they both wanted to um, Spurgeon and Bart get the bring the word of God into the present moment. That was a real key mm-hmm. concern. Both of them did it in different ways. Bart, interestingly, had this, and he's a you know great Swiss theologian, German-speaking theologian. He had a time earlier in his ministry where he was a preacher, he was a preacher before he was a theologian, which is always a good thing, um, where he, he wrote this sermon once, or preached a sermon called the Titanic Sermon, which was sort of just, and he sort of re- repented of it in later years as a kind of what how to go wrong in preaching is probably what he was doing, where he basically was so enraptured by the news of the Titanic going down in 1912 
he spent virtually the entire sermon talking about the details of the ship, how profound this event was. And you can, in reading the sermon, it's fascinating because you just it's exactly like what we do today. We're enraptured by the present moment. And he came to look back at it after and said, this is just ridiculous. I was just literally really enraptured by what I'd read in the news. Um, and it engulfed the sermon. He said something about a psalm right at the end. There was hardly any element of this being an exp- exposition of the word of God. And that taught him. He did the same throughout the First mm-hmm. World War. He struggled with the same thing. Endless details about what he's hearing about the war. And people came, an old woman came up to him in the congregation, a sweet old lady, and said, please, I hear enough about the war and think about it most of the week. I want, when I come to church on a Sunday morning, to hear some good news, to something, something different. Mm-hmm. And that really sort of, you know led him in a way to think very differently about what the point of preaching is. And I don't just mean preaching in a pulpit on a Sunday. We can say, okay, well, not everyone gets to do that. But all Christians have a platform of some variety. They can all speak words of life uh, to those around them, especially on media platforms. And I think, what do we want to give people? Are we going to be so saturated in the media, so engrossed by the clickbait, as you say, and what, what seems to be shiny at the time? Or are we going to actually think, can we give someone something of substance? Like Michael, you said earlier, the creating content. It's just funny, isn't it? So often, because we're obsessed with creating content, we don't have much content. <laughs> you know, we don't yeah. actually have any. Yeah. We, we, we don't yeah. have much substance behind it. And I think people want to hear that Christians have something worth saying. And we're not going to get that by only. So yes, we have the, mm. the Bible in one hand, newspaper in the other, but not to the extent where we're really gravitating to the newspaper as the exciting thing and finding a passage to tag on to the end to show that we're a little bit relevant. Interestingly, C.S. Lewis you know, who was incredibly influential as an apologist, evangelist, and writer and, and academic in his generation. He hardly ever read the news or watched the news. Hmm. I don't know if you could watch the news. They didn't have TV. The TV had not created itself then, um, or the world then, as, as it does now. But Lewis did hardly spend any time engaging with the news. And his friends thought this was scandalous because hmm. he was like a public intellectual, someone who's speaking into everyday issues. So he said, I, don't, I just find it's a waste of time. I'd rather read significant things that are going to help me speak to uh, real issues that people are going through. And he was able to speak to real people. Um, not it didn't require constant references to what were the latest drama going on in order to do. Yeah. Just the interesting thing with that, and then sorry, Michael, I'll jump, jump to you, is that um, I thought it's a very helpful reflection. But the other thing as well, I think, with that, I mean, I love the sentiment. I've often quoted it, but I also wonder whether we, you know, because we live in this age now where everything is clickbait and interlinked. You know, I one of the things I've personally discovered. I mean, I love the news. I'm a news junkie. I have to, I have to really be careful around that. I want to be engaged. But I, you know, I tend to sort of, you know, during the during the week at least, certainly, you know, get up about six a.m. in the morning, cup of tea, see it before the kids get up, read the Bible, pray, that kind of thing. And I have caught myself, particularly in the last few months during COVID, when I was in news junkie season, I would get up, put the cup, put the kettle on, and before then taking my cup of tea into the lounge and going to read my Bible, I would open my iPhone and mm-hmm. I'd read the news headlines. And I've had to stop myself doing that because it's total distraction. Exactly as you say there, it, that that is then in your head as you're reading scripture. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, if I'm honest, yeah, it would work well that the passage I was reading of scripture reflected on what I'd read. But more often, I found it was the way around. That I'm thinking mm-hmm. more about the, the, the news than I am about the, the piece of scripture I'm reading. And so now, just changing that activity and going, no, now I'm at a cup of tea, and I, w- I don't open the phone, or try not to open the phone before I've read the Bible and prayed. And then later, I'll read the news, because I love the, I love reading yeah. the news. But just mm-hmm. putting things the right way around. I think could be helpful. Mm. But sorry, yeah. Michael, you would have said something. No, um, there's three things that came to my mind. Firstly, just three back things. on what Aaron was saying, if I'm allowed, I'll, I'll keep going until I get interrupted or I hesitate to deviate or repeat. Um, but um, I mean, talking about Lewis, it's interesting because Lewis obviously was steeped in like reading literature from previous generations. Mm. And I think he, I, I can't remember the quote now, but he basically says, you know, if you only read stuff that's happening immediately around you, yeah you'll be blind to the errors around you. And it's only actually by reading outside of your culture, outside of your generation, that you'll see that. Mm-hmm. And this came home to me kind of earlier in the last year um, when kind of like the Black Lives Matter protests were going on and people were kind of discussing kind of the kind of political issues revolving around that in terms of kind of progressive kind of left-wing politics and so on. It's interesting because I was reading um, The Gulag Archipelago um, Alexander uh-huh. Solzhenitsyn, which is a massively long read. I mean, it's like mm. it's 24 hours in the audiobook and the abridged edition. But actually reading this book that was written completely outside of this kind of particular context mm. that we were in gave me a perspective on what was happening 
and some of the things that were happening, which I wouldn't have got if I just read the news. Mm. And it kind of made me realize that like, there is a, you know, we talked about last week with social media, the danger of kind of like, it's a lot easier to read tweets and kind of mm. soundbite headlines. It's mm. a lot harder to sit and read, you know, mm. an extended book. But actually, it's only when we do that kind of stuff that we'll have something mm. to be able to engage with what's happening around yeah. us. So I think being able to learn lessons from previous generations or maybe other mm. cultures so actually we can speak and not just regurgitate what's happening in the news, but have something more interesting to say. Yeah. Yeah. That's really- um, yeah. Yeah. No, I was just going to say along that, I think, I guess if, if I'm a pastor who's preaching expositionally week by week, I think there's a real danger that I would then start with the news and try and squeeze a Bible passage to kind of comment on it. Mm-hmm. And actually, if we really dig into scripture, one of the things I've loved when I've pre- preached ex- expositionally for a local church in the past has been just digging into a pastor scripture that you think has absolutely no relevance to the world as it is today. <laughs> and then as you really understand it, thinking, oh, wow, this does speak, but it speaks of a, a greater power because you're not trying to squeeze it to say what you want it to say. You're actually yeah. just finding out what it's saying and then seeing that because it's scripture and God breathed it's, it's relevance. Yeah. Whereas I yeah. think there is a scope potentially for maybe in a kind of topical apologetic sense. Yeah sometimes taking a, a current topical issue and then speaking into mm. it. Mm. Um, I wouldn't want that every Sunday as part of my diet as a Christian, but I think there's a, an opportunity mm. in the kind of secular yeah. world particularly to speak as yeah. Christians in that way. It goes it goes into the, uh, the issue, like I was saying earlier, about the uh, where do we get our – how do we give people stuff of substance, isn't it? And mm. it's, so, it's funny that Lewis, the, the quote um, you, you're mentioning about the – I think he has a rule, doesn't he, but every – uh, new book you read, you should read two old books, or maybe every two two new books you have to read one old book to balance yourself out. Mm. And it's part. And he wrote that as a kind of introduction to um, a book on Athanas on Athanasius's book, the uh, on the incarnation. So a kind of one of the early church fathers, um, and this is his muse, him having to introduce why should you care about what Athanasius wrote, mm. um, you know, centuries and centuries ago. This is why you should care because it's incredibly important. There's a reason why books are classics. They're classics because they've stood the test of time, and they're not just things that people are excited about in the moment. Like how many books are published today that no one at all will care about? How many things that we we spend our time thinking about, invested in, no one's going to care. <laughs> and he's just showed a picture of his uh, his new book. New book. <laughs> <laughs> but that will be one that does stand the test of time. Of course. But the point well, that Lewis is really well, making well, on well, it well, is. Um, is actually that it's not that um, older generations are somehow always better. It's not that old is better, mm. because there's loads of stuff in the old and older generations which will also have been off the moment and not worth it. It's that also that when you when you immerse yourself in another place, like you did with Solzhenitsyn in there, Michael, mm. it can give you a perspective on your generation that your generation doesn't have. You've got your own perspective on that generation, the previous one. Yeah. I, I think I know what's wrong with the, some of those from my perspective, mm. but they I don't know what's wrong with my generation. My generation doesn't know. We need these other voices from the past to speak in because they, they have wisdom to share. Mm. I think that's really that's that's really helpful. I think actually, I mean, I love I love that passage of, of Lewis that you you mentioned. And I, I think it's also the, the metaphor from memory he talks about is, you know, if you read old books, it's like you allow the fresh breezes of the ages mm. to kind of to kind of blow through it, exactly as you say there, Aaron, to go that, you know, our culture makes mistakes, uh, but the mistakes we make are different to a culture in the past. And just in the same way, actually, it's a bit, I, you know, reading old books and engaging with older stuff, in some ways it's similar to living in another culture. You know, if you had the privilege of living somewhere else, we, we loved our time in Canada because we saw, coming back, we came back to the UK, we saw things that I don't mm. think we'd have seen if we hadn't lived in another culture. I know when we were over there, we saw things in Canadian culture that our Canadian friends are like, oh, I never thought about that. Yeah. Because if you you have that two-culture perspective, I think reading does the same. But look, I'm conscious of the time. So one last thing I wanted to just sort of talk about as we try to draw some threads together here. And I think, you know, I love where we've brought this into, into land on thinking about what we know and sense what we shape ourselves with. And I think last week we, we, we had at the back of our conversation that Romans 12 passage mm-hmm. about, you know, being be renewed by the, be transformed by the renewing of your, your mind and the idea of course what you bring into your mind and what you read and think about is going to you are going to end up molding yourself around it so this is not this is not just casual stuff we need to think carefully about this but the other thing that occurred to me i was on a scottish hill walk the other the other the other week last weekend the sun shone in scotland and so good buddy and i we know we're privileged here that you know we can get out and get away from lockdown stuff because just up the road got some great hills so a lovely hill walk up a scottish valley talk about this show that we were planning on recording because he, he listens to this and one of the things that came up in our conversation, he said, you know, one of the things that disturbs me, he said about media, is how much it's just all bad news. 
He said, you know, the whole clickbait thing that we've talked about, you know, why is it that bad news stuff sells? Mm-hmm. You know, the BBC, The Telegraph, The Guardian, whoever it is, left, right, centre, whatever it is, nobody leads generally with a good news kind of story if there is a good news story they'll find a way of spinning it so you know like vaccination numbers are up but they'll find a way of going oh yeah but there's this issue and mm. and there's always this spin and as christians we should have a question there of course because we are people to whom good news should mm. should should matter for somewhat obvious reasons so i suppose what do we think about that how can we how can we perhaps change the discourse slightly are there ways of encouraging of being people who perhaps in the, in the stuff that we share on social media that when there are rare occasions of good news perhaps we magnify things better perhaps the way that we talk we try and find you know stuff that is good and noble and beautiful that we can also be sharing but also are there ways as we talk about news and, and, and engage in a world of news that we find a way of talking about the good news because of course christianity is at its heart not a piece of advice it's a piece of news right mm. Yeah, I mean, I, gosh, loads of good well, I set you up as an evangelist for that. If you can't yeah. be an evangelist, Michael, say something off the back of that, then you should but go into no, it's, it's something, something I've been really thinking about, because thinking back over the kind of pandemic, really, and thinking about how that's been reported, um, one of the things I was feeling was like, you know, like generally the left-wing media, I felt was being very kind of scaremongering in terms of like COVID you know, itself. Um, and it was like, you know, this is terrible. We're all going to die. It's going to be awful. We're like, you know, panic, panic, panic. Um, and then someone said, yes, but the right-wing media also do that, but just for different things. It's like, you know, the economy is going to crash. We're not going to have any jobs. We're all going to die. And it was like, everyone's panicking. And this is the thing, you know, like, if you're on the left, you panic about one thing. If you're on the right, you panic about another. And I was thinking, you know, what, what should mark us out as Christians? Well, according to Peter in his letter, it should be that we're people of hope because mm. people are going to ask us about the hope that we have. Yeah. So in a world that is, you know, left and right, panicking like mad for different dystopian futures that they're imagining, (laughs) like actually as Christians, we've got the hope of the new creation. And, you know, it's not a kind of like, you know, everything's going to go back to normal by the summer or like the roadmap is necessarily going to to come to fruition in the way that Boris hopes it does. But it is it's bigger than that, isn't it? We've got a much, much bigger hope as Christians uh, that we want to hold out to a a world that is panicked and is despairing. And, you, you know, not just COVID, you can look at that. You know, I've been thinking about the environment recently and, you know, so much of environmental concern, which is right, is driven by a motive which is f- based on fear. And again, as Christians, I want to say, like, absolutely, we should be caring for the environment, but not from a basis of fear, you know, like Greta Thunberg, you know, I want you to panic, I want you to panic. Mm. But, but, you know, a sense of hope, you know, God loves this world that he created and is going to redeem it one day. And therefore we can get involved with a sense of purpose because we know that our labour in the Lord is not in vain, you know, whatever that labour is. Mm. So so I think for me, it's it's reading widely not expecting the answer to be, you know, if I read in the left, you know, not thinking, well, the right's going to have the answer. If I read right, wing, you know, the left's got the answer. You know, as a Christian, there'll be bits of left and right, you know, political media that I'll identify with and there'll be bits that I won't. Um, but the gospel's more than just identifying with left and right or one news channel, you know, the Telegraph over the Guardian or vice versa. It's saying, actually, we've, we've, we're privy to news that is not being reported. And yet we want to report. We want to make this known and yeah. and let's use this as an opportunity to speak with with hope and with grace and with joy into a situation which is you know pretty bleak yeah that's right it's really funny that you know at the back of that what andy was saying as well earlier there about the fact that we're defined by the good news and the fact that you know the gospel we, get, we, we come to refer to the gospel um without real, realizing the root word that gospel just mean you know the root of it is actually to see a good news that needs to be announced, like an announceable good news, the Evangelion, and um, the way that Paul even refer. You know, it's funny how Paul in his epistles will often say "my gospel" in a way that would be really weird. It'd be really weird if, like, if Michael Ott stood up at an evangelistic crusade in Antigua. Not, not. It wouldn't be weird that he's in Antigua, but it'd be weird that um, he was standing up saying, "This is the my gospel that I that I bring to you." But then you forget, of course, that that's a word that was used. Yeah, euangelion is a term that was actually used um, for good news. And he's appropriating a term that is in existence for the gospel um, and, and making it into the definite article. We have the good news and we need to like, proclaim that. So, you know, when he gets into all of this stuff about um, in 1 Corinthians, for example, you know, where death, uh, where is your victory? Where is your sting on the resurrection? It's, it, it's incredible. It's incredible news. It's the most, you know, I've, I've never done sort of evangelistic uh, stuff on 
the resurrection, as I'm sure you both have numerous times, I'm often pointing to the fact that the resurrection is the most incredible news you could ever hear, ever. Like there's literally nothing can more conceivably amazing to hear than that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, there isn't any more news after that. It's almost like that is the end of all news. It's like that you don't need any more. Okay, you do need some news, but that's like the best possible news. Um, and I think pro- probably as evangelicals, we might over talk it so much that it becomes not very profound. We mention it all the time in a way that becomes very banal, a bit like a fridge magnet. Um, and actually, you know, the verse on a fridge magnet, sorry, you just don't notice it. It's just there. And actually, I think we need to sort of re- recover the sort of mm. defamiliarizing of how amazing that news is and how unbelievably astounding it is, not just by saying the same thing over and over again, maybe by being creative and how we engage with it, but pointing to, as you say, Michael, that incredible hope. It's a hope like no other. That's why when, you know, Paul says mm. we, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We actually have an incredible hope that we will actually be, be, be stepping on the shore with, with Christ. Um, in in heaven because of his resurrection and so it just changes your whole outlook on everything in this world so i think focusing on the good news as a kind of filter for how we look at all news is probably a good thing to do in this as well i think that's a great place to um to bring the conversation to an end and it occurred to me there as both of you were talking actually that we talked about the fact that i think you know the the world that television has made the world that digital culture has made i think there's something about news that shapes things News changes the world and you can either be transformed. The world can either be shaped into this model of of distraction and busyness and tribalism and everything else or Christians. We can figure out, wow, this is a broken place we're inhabiting, but we're called to take this this good news, this gospel and get out there and proclaim it. Because when we let it shape us and we are remolded in its image, then, of course, God can do amazing things. And so news is always going to change you. It's just a case of which news are you going to shape your life around? Well, we've covered an awful lot. And uh, in the last kind of 50 minutes and uh, as ever, it's just really great hanging out with you guys and talking. And I hope everyone uh, kind of listening at a, a home or on a bike or on a plane to Antigua or making <laughs> bread or you know, any of those kind of things uh, has found this uh, edifying and helpful. And if you've enjoyed the show, do tell other people about it. You spread the links. And if you've really enjoyed it, uh, again, just look up the, uh, the link to, to Patreon in the show notes. And we hugely value, uh, you know, lobbying as a, a pound or a dollar whatever because that all helps with hosting fees and editing fees and and everything else and but otherwise uh, from me uh, Andy Bannister and uh, and from Aaron and uh, Michael uh, we will see you again uh, in a week or so's time for another uh, topic of uh, relevance and importance and excitement punctuated with bad jokes so uh, for me goodbye and uh, see you next time see ya see ya